Children ages three years old through fifth grade uh, can be dismissed to Bible explorers. Thank you for investing in them, the gospel in your own life. Uh, Pastor Pat mentioned that uh, we are beginning our sermon series uh, in Ecclesiastes. And the question that we have to wonder this morning is, what do you do when someone has the courage to say what you have only had the courage to think? How do you respond when someone has the courage to say out loud what you have only thought? You don't always get a positive response, do you? That's exactly what happened to probably one of the most famous authors in the 20th century. You, you would know him by his initials, but let's just do a little game. See if you can figure out who this is by a couple of the books that he wrote. I'll give you them in the order of the most obscure to the giveaway, all right? And so see where you can find it out. The Weight of Glory, The Abolition of Man. Okay, Matt, you're on the money. Yes, absolutely. The Space Trilogy. Matt, go ahead and say it for us. Mere Christianity. The Chronicles of Narnia. Matt? C.S. Lewis. All right. So C.S. Lewis once wrote a book that he knew that the majority of Christians would not be able to handle. It was called The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis knew the world not be able to handle his doubts or his questions that were so raw and so transparent after the death of his wife at cancer at the age of 45. So C.S. Lewis actually wrote The Weight of Glory and originally published it underneath a pseudonym. N.W. Clark is how the book officially came out. And listen to Lewis as he has the courage to say what maybe you have only thought. Are we able to get it almost there? All right. Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. He goes on to say, not that I think, not that I am, not that I think, I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. And he ends, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. Lewis wrote, the drill drills on. <laughs> we don't expect to find those words from one of our leaders in the Christian faith. What do you do when someone says out loud what you have only had the courage to think? Lewis was searching for meaning in a fallen world, and that is exactly what Ecclesiastes does for us. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It is page 553 in your pew Bible. It is in the middle of your Bible with five other wisdom books. 
The wisdom books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these five wisdom books are not about the nation of Israel as a whole, but it's really about you as an individual. Uh, So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you're still trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, you will find these wisdom books very accessible to you, okay? Because you won't have to know ancient Near Eastern history. You won't have to know Jewish culture. You won't have to know the account of some battle or even how to do an animal sacrifice. By the way, we don't do that here if you're new, okay? Uh, But you won't have to know all of those things. Ecclesiastes really starts off with a truth at a very common baseline level that we all can identify with. Ecclesiastes addresses you as a human being in this fallen world. And as humans, we are all searching for meaning. Everybody has questions about life. By the way, if you probably don't have any questions about life, it might just mean you haven't lived long enough, right? But eventually, you will have questions and people are looking for answers. And the good news is, God in His grace has given us the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a fellow human being, interrogating the world and his experiences for what is the meaning of life. So we're calling this series The Search, and let's read Ecclesiastes, just verses 1 through 2. The words... Of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Wow. Ecclesiastes is filled with some puzzling words, right? Some strange material. How can we hope to make sense of this entire book if it starts off that puzzling? Well, we're going to see a couple of things this morning just to kind of get an understanding of the book as a whole. The first thing that we're going to see is the author. The author is something that we would probably never spend a whole lot of time on in a service, but we need to. Those of you that might enjoy the the deep, nerdy, geeky Bible study, this might be a part for you. If you're tempted to fall asleep, it actually changes how you interpret the whole book if you understand the author. Did you notice that just like C.S. Lewis, the writer of Ecclesiastes veils his true identity? He writes underneath the pen name of the words of... The preacher, verse 1. Now, most people read verse 1, and they just assume that it must be King Solomon, right? That's what we've been told through Sunday school. He is, verse 1, a son of David. Check. King in Jerusalem. Check. Ecclesiastes 1.16. This also fits Solomon. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and and knowledge. Check. Okay? On the surface, definitely looks like Solomon, but ever since Martin Luther in the 16th century, there has been growing consensus that maybe this book wasn't written by Solomon. And their case is built on noting a couple of observations. First, in verse 1, notice that Solomon's name is not mentioned directly. Solomon wrote Proverbs, Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, and guess how he introduces himself in that book? By name. I, Solomon, here are my Proverbs. Song of Solomon, I, Solomon, here's my song. He at least breaks trend here, okay? We're not saying it's, it's, it's a, you know, signed and sealed and the case is closed, but he's breaking trend. Second, the phrase son of David in verse 1 really just means descendant of David. 
So anyone that is a descendant of David could actually have written this. It doesn't have to be his exact son, but just in that line. Then go down with me to Ecclesiastes 1.12 again. This is another point that they use to say that there is some question here. In verse 12, I, the preacher, here's our key word, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Why is that problematic? Because Solomon died as king. So there was never a time when he was kicked off of his throne to say and look back and say, when I was king, he died as king. So there was never a have been. It's an issue. Finally, go over to Ecclesiastes 2.9. Ecclesiastes 2.9. And again, if you're used to using your Bible, I know this is easy, but for those of you that are new to using a Bible, the large numbers of the chapters, small numbers of the verses. So Ecclesiastes 2 is the big number. Verse 9 says, And so I became great and surpassed, our next key phrase, all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now when Solomon became king, there was only one person that was before him king over Jerusalem, and that was his father, David, who sacked the city. So it's kind of hard to say, when I became king, I was greater than all those who were before me, when all those who were before you was just one person. Okay? So Ecclesiastes could be written by Solomon, but at the very least, the descriptions here don't necessarily fit the time well perfectly. And so it could be written by a Solomon-like figure. But regardless of who he is, we need to get on with his message. His message. And in order to understand the message, now we get to look at the structure of the book. The structure of the book. It's most interesting, and it's essential in understanding what Solomon has to say to us. As we go back to verses 1 and 2, see if you can hear two voices. Two voices. In verse 1... We have someone who is a narrator. And this is what he says. These are the words of the preacher. Right? These are the words of the preacher. Now scroll down to verse 12. Verse 12, we say, I, the preacher. We have the preacher talking in first person. So we have a narrator who introduces us in verses 1 through 11. It's called the prologue. Okay? He wants to be the storyteller to set things up. Then we have the preacher who begins speaking in chapter 1, verse 12, in first person. And guess what? He preaches a sermon longer than we do here, all the way through chapter 12, down to verse 8. Go ahead and flip there to chapter 12, verse 8. This Solomon figure gets to preach from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to 12, verse 8. And here's his conclusion. A long sermon, and he ends with, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. But then notice in verse 9 that it goes back to the narrator, who gives us the ultimate meaning of the book. He's providing an epilogue. Verses 9 through 14 is the narrator's conclusion to the matter. So this is what he says. Besides being wise, the preacher, you hear that, that's third person, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Here's where we get the narrator and his purpose. My son... 
beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Gretchen, good verse for you as you go off to college tomorrow. Okay, all of the college students said... Amen. There it is, right? There's much weariness of the flesh. But here's his conclusion. The narrator, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This structure of this book, with the narrator introducing it, a huge section in the middle of the preacher talking in first person, and then the narrator wrap it up. That is a normal pattern in wisdom literature because you have a storyteller, this narrator, who is taking someone's life, and he's trying to use his life to illustrate what is the ultimate meaning in life, and he's using that famous person to illustrate his point. And this is what he's trying to get at. Hey, son, pay attention to this guy. If he can't find meaning in life under the sun, and he is the most famous person we know who has it all, then you can't find meaning in this life under the sun either. Pay attention. This is so modern. This is like watching Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood, but with a wise host. Okay? What is Access Hollywood supposed to teach you? What is Entertainment Tonight supposed to teach you? They don't really know. But if I was to sit there and watch it with my son, I'd say, son, look at the stars. Look at the celebrities. Pay attention to their lives and all that they have. In fact, let's just choose one person. We worship in New England this man who wears a number 12 on his jersey. Look at him. He has won Super Bowls, broken records. He's good looking. Married a supermodel and wealthy. But listen to this clip. Here we go. Oh, not that. We've gone too far. <laughs> Linda, can you find it? There it is. Here. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, He's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. This is what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is, me, I thank God. It's gotta be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew, I wish I knew. Son, 
Look at the stars. They have it all. And yet they still cannot find meaning in life. The narrator introduces the book. He allows the Mr. Preacher Man to make his point, all so that the narrator can make his ultimate point at the end. And so he's using Solomon's life as an autobiographical story to teach his son. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that very modern? We all can do that. My dad used to tell me, Josh, you got to learn from other people's mistakes because if you try to make them all, you won't live long enough. (laughs) That's the idea, right? He's letting you go down the life of somebody else who has, like Solomon, what does Solomon have? Wine, women, money, wisdom. Yet he's still looking at life and says all is vanity. Now here's my plea for you. Because he allows the preacher to go down the road a very long time, 12 chapters, you have to keep the end in mind. You're going to have to have patience in this sermon series. It just might be our hook that you have to show up here every single week, but you need patience to get to the end of the matter because the narrator is allowing the preacher man to go on and on and on, and you might be tempted to say, wow, why are we taking that long? Why are you allowing us to go down that road? Should we really be thinking about that that much? But he's doing all that because... He wants you to feel unsettled. He wants you to have unanswered questions before he makes his point. Now, that's a problem for many of us because we can't go a day with tension in our household, unanswered questions, things aren't organized. We hate that. We want it all wrapped up neatly in a three-step technique, how to make your life better, in a 15-minute sermon, and walk out the door. But the narrator believes that his son will not cling to the true ultimate meaning in life unless he's really begun to understand and see the way the world really is. So what is the cadence that the world keeps step with? Look at verse 2. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now before you think that's an announcement from the redundancy department of redundancy, this is not just repetition for repetition's sake. We're used to this literary device. We talk about something being the song of songs. We talk about God being the God of the gods, right? We talk about the heaven of heavens, the highest of heavens. And Solomon here is doing the exact same thing. His message is sad. His message is sober. But it's vanity of vanities. It's a word that occurs 38 times in this book. It's most poignantly repeated in chapter 12, verse 8, at the end of the manor. Vanity is a vanity, says a preacher. All is vanity. It just means vapor or a breath. And do you realize what he's really saying when he tells people that are reading Ecclesiastes, all is vanity? Church, this is a huge difference that I hope you catch. The book of Job where he loses everything in his life and it causes him to ask the ultimate questions and to find the ultimate meaning. That's through suffering. But Ecclesiastes was not written to the person who has lost it all. Ecclesiastes was written to the person who got it all. Ecclesiastes is written to the Tom Brady's. And, and we might be thinking, oh, well, I'm not Tom Brady. I don't, I don't have the millions of dollars. Well, compared to the rest of the world, right, what are Americans? 
We have the most comforts, the most ease, the greatest wealth. We think about retirement. We actually have those options. And so it is written to people that haven't lost it all, but it is written to us that actually have attained it, that have some measure of success. So it is not just the tragedies in your life that might cause you to wonder about the problem of evil or is there a God, but it also can be the successes. The narrator is using Solomon to say the only thing worse than going through life and having none of your dreams come true is going through life and having all of your dreams come true. And then you wonder, like Tom Brady, is this all there is? This isn't quite what I thought it would be. And the preacher man has wealth and wisdom, success, wine, women, and song. He's smart as a whip, and yet it all seemed empty to him. This is so modern. On my way back from Virginia a couple weeks ago, I drove from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. to get back here on two hours of sleep. And I decided that Amazon Playlist was going to help me stay awake. And it did. And we, Amazon Music and I, we went through some playlists. And I did not intend that my radio surfing would actually be sermon preparation. Don't worry, I didn't count it as work, all right, or miles. Uh, but as I was listening to the top 50 of classic rock, the top 50 from the 90s, the top 50 country, I got to hear what the stars, what the celebrities' understanding of life was. All of these musicians, they ask the same questions that Solomon's asking, and they're arriving at the exact same answers. And guess what? People inside this church are asking those questions, but church, people outside these walls are asking these questions, and we need to be equipped to be able to answer them. So even though we don't usually do these kinds of things, let me give you some modern-day poetry. This is from Queen. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy, I need no sympathy. Because I'm easy come, easy go, a little high, a little low. Any way the wind blows, That's Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. It's meaningless, right? The preacher man is not being overly pessimistic. He's not Debbie Downer. He's not having a bad hair day. He's looked at life, and he's going to give you reasons. If you actually come back next week, he's going to give you reasons why he believes all is vanity. But I'm going to give you his ace of spades. Are you ready for it? Go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 and 2. It says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is of love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil to the clean and the unclean, 
to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. What event happens to all? Death. The point of life is this. There is no point to life because you die. He's being rational. Don't shun him because he has the courage to say out loud what you have only had the courage to think. So if death is the one certain thing that makes all of life temporary, then why live? Why live? Go back to Ecclesiastes 5.18. He's going to give us more than just one reason throughout this book, but here's one to get an overview. Ecclesiastes 5.18 Why live if you're going to die? Well, his possible conclusion is, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is this, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. What is his answer? How do you find meaning in life? He says, Don't worry about finding meaning in life. Don't ask the big questions. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. And guess who played that? volume down just a little bit here. Who knew that Dave Matthews read Ecclesiastes? Oh, you're not supposed to see that guy yet. All right, we'll go ahead and go there. But his point is this, that if tomorrow you die, you might as well eat and drink and enjoy all that you can. And you know what? Some of us have actually arrived there. Whether it's escapism with watching sports, escapism of kissing the wife, hugging the kids, staying so busy that we just work our job and we get caught up in the whirlwind that we never stop to feel the nauseousness of being caught in this whirlwind. We just keep going on to the next day. Life doesn't make sense, so just enjoy it as long as you got it. How about this modern-day interpretation of Ecclesiastes? Tim McGraw. I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. To live like you were dying. Why is Tim McGraw right? Because you actually are dying, right? If you were dealt aces, play them, because tomorrow you are going to be dealt deuces. That's the whole point. So live like you were dying. Now, why does God want us to hear that? Why does God give us a book that fits our culture with more success, more ease, more comfort, more toys, more goals, more retirement, and yet everything is meaningless? Why do we need to hear that this morning? What's God's goal? Well, first, we live in a culture that thinks that God and church is largely irrelevant. But it means from the book of Ecclesiastes that God can go there. 
Let me put it to you like this. Many of us are prone to clean our house before the guests arrive, right? The preacher man doesn't. He lets his house remain as it is. He catches you off guard by leaving it so untidy so that we can see the way life really is, not like those precious moments figurines that we have across a glass countertop. Sometimes we want church to be safe and clean and pristine and sentimental. And sometimes we want church to be naive. But you know what? That produces a G-rated version of God like this picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's going to be crucified on the cross. It's in pastels. He's not sweating drops of blood. He's mildly trusting the Father as if, oh, of course, this is the next thing I'm going to do today. That guy could not make it in certain parts of the world. And yet that is the kind of Jesus that sometimes we offer people. It's this pristine, have-your-life-together, bathroom picture Jesus. But the preacher man, if you were to say, preacher man, you shouldn't talk like this. You shouldn't play Queen or Dave Matthews or Tim McGraw in church, and we don't usually do that. So if you're our guest, it's just because of a long road trip. So it was delirious, okay? But you know what? The preacher man says, why not talk about this? The rest of the world is dealing with this way that world already is. This is what life under the sun looks like. And the good news that we have in our Bibles is that it means no matter what questions you have, no matter how unsettling the situation can be, God is able and willing to go there. I'd encourage you to invite people who don't know Christ, and I think that Ecclesiastes might be better served if it was the very first book of the Bible. If you read it first before Genesis, and you got to see all that you've tried to put your bucket, your life is a bucket, and you've tried to put it underneath different things, or to pour your bucket into these different categories to find meaning and fulfillment, and to quench your thirst and you've tried pleasure, and you've tried work, and you've tried toil, and you've tried immortality, you're hoping that you're not going to die, and you've tried health, and you've tried relationships, and you've poured your bucket into all of these things, hoping that it will give your life meaning, only to find out that it only makes you more thirsty. And if you tried that first, and you read Ecclesiastes first, then you come to Genesis 1-1, and it says, in the beginning God created you. That life is not all vanity because there actually is a creator who made you. And that it's because there is life not only under the sun, but there is a life above the sun. And you can find life in the sun, Jesus Christ, that now you can pour your life into him. And you know what he actually says? I come to you, those that come to me will never thirst again. I am a spring of living water. What does a spring do? Some of us all week long have been dumping dirt on our spring, trying to believe that God doesn't exist and to find meaning and all these other things, and it's been clogging it up. But you know what a spring is? It's powerful. And church, we're glad that you're here because you know what? That persistent spring is going to bubble up and you can renew your faith in Christ this morning and take us up in faith in Christ and say, you are the creator. You are a judge. And because there is eternity in which you will judge me, there is meaning in this life. What I do does matter. I do have a purpose. My life can count. 
That is the end of the matter. But the narrator is going to allow the preacher man to really mess with you for 12 chapters and make you look at some dark things because all of us don't want to believe that just these little good gifts that God has couldn't be the ultimate thing. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God in order to turn a vain and empty life into a meaningful life in which you will enjoy God's good gifts in their proper place. The good news about Ecclesiastes is this. If you want to live again, read Ecclesiastes. The rest of the world has been on a mad search for knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. But like the Rolling Stones, who know that they can't get no satisfaction, Ecclesiastes is saying, anyone that wants to live again, stay patient all the way to the end of the matter and find that living spring in Jesus Christ. To think about where you have been finding your spring, we want to give you a time of just silent reflection. The uh, piano player is going to play through the hymn uh, one time. He's going to pause and just say, God, where have I been looking for meaning in all the wrong places? Am I thirsting after you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you truly my spring? Are you what give me life? We'll sit there and let uh, Jen play with us one time, and then uh, Andrew will, will stand and we'll sing it together, and then we'll take communion.